Well, I think we'll get started. Welcome, everybody. I want to begin in chapter 37 uh, of Genesis, dealing with the patriarchs. Verse 19. Okay. The boss told me we're in verse 19. Fred, the boss, and the other Fred isn't here, so that's we're going to pick up. But uh, just a reminder of what we're doing here. We're studying the patriarchs, and we're now in uh, the life of Joseph. Chapter 38 is going to be a bunny trail, uh, as you'll see in just a minute. One of the, I think, one of the most difficult chapters to read in the book of Genesis. There's no greater chapter that illustrates human depravity than chapter 38, which we'll get to in a minute. But Joseph is the second youngest child of, uh, of Jacob. Uh, Benjamin is the youngest, but Joseph uh, has had a series of dreams, and he's related those to his brothers. He is with his brothers north, uh, up north, uh, herding the animals, and so on. And what has happened is his brothers have now basically uh, conspired to get rid of him. And we read that in verse 18. They conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer, meaning Joseph. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams, which is obviously a, 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 a slam at him, a very critical mocking and making fun of him. But, verse 21, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And that's interesting, because remember, uh, you have to kind of go back earlier in the text. Uh, Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob. But Reuben had violated his father's family by going into, in other words, having sexual relations with Bilna, one of his wives, actually a servant of one of his wives. And he lost that role, and that right is first one. It had devastating consequences later on. So it's interesting that Reuben acts, that Reuben acts to preserve Joseph, because had he not acted, they would have killed him. Verse 22, Reuben said, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, that they do not lay a hand on him, that he may rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brother, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, that's what his father had given him, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Presumably this was sort of like a cistern or a, a dried-up well. Then they sat down to eat. Now, in my Bible, I put four exclamation points after that. I mean, what they've just done to their brother, basically kidnapped him, thrown him into an old well or an old cistern, and they sit down and eat. <laughs> Obviously, no guilt, no remorse. Uh, this is vengeance. And they looking at him, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River, and they're coming down, headed to Egypt. It's interesting, Ishmaelites, you can remember who Ishmael is? The son of Abraham to Hagar. So these are the descendants of Ishmael. The Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it to, down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brother, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. So he is, in effect, saying the same thing Reuben had said 
a bit earlier. And his brothers listened to him. Now, that's, let me put, uh, uh, make a comment here and go down a brief buddy here and put an important context here. Judah is emerging as a leader among the brothers. As remember, and that's why this is so important, Judah will become the son of Jacob that will eventually lead to Jesus. The Messiah will come from Judah. We're going to read more about him in the next chapter, which you'll see in a minute. While his brothers listen, verse 26, or excuse me, 28. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So you have two groups here, the Midianites and the Ishmaelites. The Midianites, they can sell him to the Ishmaelites and uh, for 20 shekels of silver. It is impossible to, in 2022, make an equivalent of what 15 shekels of silver would mean today. What we do know is this was the price, the typical price of a slave in the ancient world. So this wasn't a random number they pulled out of thin air. 15 shekels is an equivalent to purchasing uh, or, or selling a, a slave. And so that's how they're treating Joseph. So now he's on his way to Egypt. Ishmaelites are going to deliver him. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in it, he tore his robes, returned to his brothers, and said, the boy's gone. And I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, ripped, dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Now, obviously they're lying, but let's think about this in the larger context of Jacob's life. Jacob is once again being deceived. Remember, the name Jacob means heel catcher, deceiving one, deceptive one. So the deceiver is again being deceived, but this time by his sons who are lying to him and deceiving him about the state of Joseph, who obviously is not dead. But what, what a horrible thing to do to her, their father. And yet, at the same time, remember all that had happened and all that was a part of the context of their jealousy toward, toward Joseph and the favoritism that, Joseph, uh, that Jacob had shown toward his son, Joseph. Verse 34, And Jacob tore, his, uh, Jacob tore his garment, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to it sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I want to say more about that in just a minute. But if you look at verse 35, when he says, Now I shall go shall go down to Sheol. Sheol, what we're doing there is just transliterating the word from the Hebrew into English. Sheol has a lot of different meanings. More than likely, Jacob here means he's going to die and be with his son. 
It, it does not mean hell. It can mean hell. In certain places, it does mean hell. Almost always in the Old Testament, however, it means the grave. It means to die. And so jo- Jacob is just, he's mourning his son, but he is, he's in despair. There's no hope in, Jacob, in Jacob's words here. It's really a sad situation because all of this is a result of a contrived story by his son. The deceiver is once again being deceived. Now, the end of the chapter identifies Potiphar. This is a very important piece of information. We've got to get through chapter 38, which we'll do in just a minute. But Jacob, or Joseph, excuse me, has now been sold to one of the top leaders of the Egyptian government. That's not a coincidence. Here again, you see the providence of God, sovereign providence of God in Joseph's life, despite the, the horrible situation of being, in effect, kidnapped and thrown into that pit and sold as a slave and all of that. God is superintending all of this because it is God's will that Joseph be in, in Egypt. And you undoubtedly know why, because that's how, that's how the Israelites are going to go from a clan of 70 to a nation of about 2 million uh, in 430 years. So we now have the information. How does Joseph get to Egypt? We now know how he gets to Egypt. But the context of this is the dysfunction of Jacob's family, how his sons, the jealousy they have toward their brother Joseph, the favoritism that Jacob showed toward Joseph, all of the things that should not be occurring, Nonetheless, God is taking all of that in his providence and making us clear in understanding how Joseph ends up in Egypt, which is a crucial factor for the birth of the children of Israel into the nation of Israel. All right? I'd really like to skip chapter 38, but it's in the Bible, so I can't do that. I don't think there's any chapter certainly in the book of Genesis, but really in the whole Bible, that demonstrates the depravity of the human being, of the human race, like this story. It's almost an unimaginable development in the life of Judah. But at the same time, although this indicates and illustrates the depravity of a man like Judah, it also is going to demonstrate the grace of God. And I want to explain both of those as we go through it. Now, remember who Judah is. He's one of the sons of Jacob. He is a son to Leah, uh, the first wife that Jacob married. Uh, remember all this that happened with Uncle Laban several chapters ago. These are now grown men. Uh, he is with his dad. And he went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Now, a Dulamite, that's just another one of the many, many clans that make up the Canaanites. So Judah is going down to a Canaanite village, and he's at the house of a man named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, and went into her. Now, do I have to explain what that means? You all know what that means? That's the euphemism in Hebrew 
for he had sexual intercourse with her. And she conceived and bore a son and called his son Er, E-R. She conceived again and bore a son. She called his name Onan. Yet she again bore another son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. All right, now, let's make sure you understand the importance of what has happened. Judah, in effect, is violating chapter 28, verse 1. He is intentionally taking a Canaanite woman for his wife. Right? Should he have done that? Well, remember that Isaac and Rebekah were so concerned about Jacob because Esau had already married a Canaanite woman, that they sent him way up north that he would find a family member to marry and make his, uh, her his bride and so on. The same thing had happened to Isaac earlier with, with Abraham. So here is Judah. It, it's, it's just an illustration how off-center the sons of Jacob really are. He's intently taken as Canaanite to be his wife, and she has three sons. Now, you have to follow this next paragraph carefully. Judah took a wife for Ur, for his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, this is a very typical thing to do. These were arranged marriages. You fell in love after you got married. So he's arranging the marriage, and he chooses Tamar. Now, without question, she's a Canaanite. She's not a Jewess. He's a Canaanite. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And now Tamar is the widow. Then Judah said to Onan, the other son, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is what is called the leverage marriage. This is a very, very, very important practice in the ancient world, and it will become something that is codified in the Mosaic Law. It's bizarre for you and me in the 21st century to even contemplate or imagine something like this happening in your family. So here you have a family, it's Judah's family, he has three sons, his first son, his firstborn son to this Canaanite woman dies. He has already married Tamar. But if, if with him being dead, his property, his name and everything would go out of existence. So to make sure that doesn't happen, elaborate marriages, the brother of the man who died would have sexual intercourse with Tamar so that she would have a son, so that that son would then inherit his dad's property and his name. It's a gracious provision by God in a real sense to make sure that a man's property and a man's name endures even after he dies. So Judah is insisting that Onan, the second brother in the line of three, take Tamar, have sexual intercourse with her, so that she becomes pregnant, so that she could give birth to a child who would then inherit heir's property. Follow me? Can you imagine it happening in your family, though? 
my brother died uh, a number of years ago. So it would be, I'd have to take his wife, impregnate her, so that she, I mean, that would not be a terribly acceptable thing in Christian culture today. But that was a provision in the ancient world. It was a gracious provision. Notice what Onan does. But Onan, I'm in verse 9 now, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, which is true. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, Tamar, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Do I have to explain what that means? Okay, I don't, because I don't want to. I'm assuming you can understand what's going on here. So he is making certain that Tamar never becomes pregnant. Verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house. So Sheila, my son, grows up. But they only had one more son. He feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, what you have here again, before we move on to the next paragraph, you have again an illustration of a dysfunctional, corrupt family. Nobody is interested in doing what God wants them to do. And Judah is seeing his immorality and his corruption being lived out in his son's lives, Er and Onan. But the focus now is on Tamar, this Canaanite girl. In the ancient world, if you had been married and you become a widow, which she is now a widow, this is one of the most desperate conditions uh, to be in. There was no safety net, there was no Medicare, no Social Security, no, no kind of provision or care. It's a very difficult situation for a woman to be in in the ancient world, and that's Tamar. Her family isn't going to be particularly interested in caring for her, and nobody in Judah's family is interested in caring for her, because Judah says, just wait. And my boy gets a little older than maybe, because I'm really afraid, because God's already taken two of my boys, going to take the third one. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. I'm in verse 12. When Judah was com comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anaim. We do not know where that village is. We really don't. But what is she doing? She took off her mourning clothes, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself up. She's taking on the role of a cult prostitute. For she saw that Sheila has grown up, and she had not been given him in marriage. When Judas saw that Sheila was grown up, or when Judah, excuse me, when Judas saw in verse 15, when Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, 
let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. All right, <laughs> this is really, really hard to picture this. But you see, again, the corruption and profane, sinful condition of Judah. He's going up to, this, to celebrate the shearing of his sheep and all that. He's got people with him. And he sees this cult prostitute sitting at the gate of this Anaim, this little village. Oh, he lusts for her. But he's going to have to pay something because she's a prostitute. So you see the corruption and profanity of someone like Judah. He sees what he thinks is a prostitute. I'm going to go into it. I'm going to have sexual relations with her. This is hardly a paragon of virtue. Continuing. Verse 17. Uh, excuse me, in the middle of verse 16. She then said to him, What will you give me that you may come into me? Again, come into me as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. What are you going to give me? What are you going to pay me? Verse 17, he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. She obviously didn't trust him. Now, a goat, I mean, he's going up to shear the, the animals and herd the animals, so that's a proper thing. I'll give you one of my goats. But she says, in effect, I don't trust you. I don't believe you're really going to do that. So give me a pledge. Verse 18, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. Now, the, the cord, let me explain what's, what this is. He wore around his neck a cord, and the signet was a little tiny thing about the size of my thumbnail which was his signet. He would, he would send documents. He would uh, make, make a little bit of wax, press his signet in it. That really is his. That's the key identification that he's Judah. And his staff. So the signet, the cord that carried the signet around his neck, and his staff. That's what she wants. Why do you think she was so specific? She knew who he was. She knew who he was. She knows who Judah is. She wants to get pregnant, and she wants to be able to identify specifically the man who made her pregnant because she's in a desperate condition. And the amazing thing is the lust of Judah is more powerful than his thinking and his reasoning power, really. Because what she's asking him, his signet, that's the personal identification of this Judah. Nobody ever is going to mistake that. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, put on her garments of her widowhood. Now listen, you have a contrast here. You have Tamar trying to preserve her life. She's in a desperate condition. Albeit, she's conniving, she's deceiving, but here's Judah. His lust for a woman that is not his wife, who is a prostitute, is stronger than even thinking through what he's doing. 
He's willing to give this perceived, she's a prostitute, his signet and his staff. Verse 20. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the plague from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men at this place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, there's no cult prostitute that's been there. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. She is pregnant by her immorality. And Judah said, bring her out. Let her be burned. <laughs> A lot of grace in Judah's character, isn't it? This was going to get burnt. Yeah. And she was being, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again, meaning he didn't have sexual intercourse with her anymore. Now, man, this is a turning point in Judah's life. He has been caught in monstrous hypocrisy. He has been caught by this woman, Tamar, who is trying to protect herself because her father-in-law, Judah, would not take care of her. Now, granted, I can hardly approve of what she did, but you see someone trying to do what's best for her in a society that did not have any kind of safety. And, and Judah is unwilling to do it until he's trapped. He's caught. He can't deny what's happened. She is more righteous than I. This is a turning point in Judah's life. When time came, of her labor, there were twins in her womb, verse 28. When she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a red scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. When he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand. His name was Zira. Now, that's the end of the story. This is going to come up a little bit later on at the end of the book. Tamar preserves the line of Judah. As Judah's wife has died, there are no more children. So Judah's line has been preserved by Tamar, a Canaanite. And her son, her firstborn, is Perez. Now, those of you that are on, online are not going to be able to see this, but what I have here is a copy of the genealogy of Jesus, according to the Gospel of Matthew. 
And if you look, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, by Tamar. Isn't that amazing? That in the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is Perez, the son of Judah, to Tamar, the Canaanite. What word would you use to characterize that? God's providence. God's providence. God's grace. God's mercy. It's, it's an amazing illustration that even something so horrible as chapter 38, where you see this immoral, profane Judah marrying a Canaanite and then having sexual relations with what he thought was a cult prostitute, and yet God takes all of this depravity <laughs> to preserve the line of his son. Because Perez will give birth to Hezron, will give birth to Ram, and going all the way down to Jesse and David. As a matter of fact, in the genealogy of Jesus, there are four women. Three of the four women are not Jews. Tamar's a Canaanite. Ruth is a Moabite. Uh, uh, David's uh, Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a Hittite, and only only the last of the women, which of course would be would be Mary, uh, who gives birth to Jesus, is a Jew. So you see an amazing an amazing demonstration, I think, of the grace of God in naming four women in the genealogy of Jesus, three of whom are not even Jews. But God, in his sovereign providence, is even demonstrating that in his, the genealogy of his son, there's grace, there's mercy, and there's inclusion. And grace is for everybody. Yes. Not just Jews. That's right. I'm surprised they didn't see it that way. That's right. I wanted to write a different history book. Tamara could have left Jacob in a room, and then she could have been Jacob and done all kinds of things. <laughs> That's right. It's just, it's, this is a, as I said uh, when I started this, chapter 38 is an, a, a perfect illustration of depravity, but it's also a perfect illustration of God's sovereign grace. Tamar is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, and what she was trying to do was to preserve and protect herself and ultimately what would be one of her sons. Because Judah would not choose to do that. This is a turning point in Judah's life, though. You're going to see as we get near the end of the book, Judah is becoming the first among equals in terms of the leadership of the, of the 12 sons, which will be the 12 tribes. And as you know, Judah will be the tribe from which Jesus comes. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now listen, do you have any questions about chapter 38? It's like you have all of this material in Joseph, and then the author, Moses, inserts this story about Judah. But it's important that he did that because it shows up in the genealogy of the Messiah. And this is where Perez comes from, to the immorality of Judah and the deceptive characteristics and preserving of her name and her, her, her good of, of, of Tamar. 
have an observation. So in, in other twin births, the second, uh, the older serves the, the younger. Uh, here, the Zerab, his hand out, then withdrawn, and then Perez comes out. So well, it's there's some inconsistency here. I, I don't know if you speak to that. Well, I, yeah, I don't know if it's inconsistency. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by that, Fred. Inconsistency. It's, it's different. It's, it's, well, it is different, yeah. yeah. And and you have the midwife assumes that his name will be Zira. That Zira is going to be the firstborn because his hand comes out of the the womb first. But then he pulls back, and out comes uh, who will become known as Perez. Um, but it does show, again, and we've seen it with a lot of the births of the children of the patriarch, the firstborn is not the one who's honored. The firstborn is not the covenant son. Here, the question is, who is the firstborn here? Zira's hand came out, but it's pulled back in. Is he the firstborn? Well, I don't, as a doctor, you're a doctor. I mean, if the <laughs> hand comes out, is he considered a firstborn if he pulls it back in? The first head that comes out. <laughs> <laughs> the first head or body. Well, anyway, so it is, it's just an unusual set of circumstances as in terms of the importance, the importance of this in terms of the context of the Bible is this is how Perez is in the line of Jesus, like Tamar's mentioned. It's, it's just amazing when you see the genealogy, unless you know chapter 38, you don't understand the significance of that. Perez by Tamar. He's a Canaanite. And everything about the birth of Perez is surrounded by sin and by corruption. But God's a God of grace who can over, overturn that to accomplish something which is good. And in that case, a coming of his son ultimately. Uh, anybody online have a question? You're with me on chapter 38? All good. Okay. All right. Let's look at chapter 39. Now we're back to Joseph. I, I love Joseph. I love the story of Joseph. But I want you to notice in verse 2 and in verse 3, we see a statement. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. And the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. That's the thesis of the life of Joseph. Verse 1 of chapter 39. We want to get started on this. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. We learned how in the previous chapter. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. I mean, again, we're learning Potiphar is a very important individual in the Egyptian government. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, all of your translations should indicate that. Lord there is in capital. It's in the uppercase. That's Yahweh. Great I am, self-sufficient, self-existent God was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Genesis 12.3, God says to Abraham, 
I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Potiphar has a Jew in his household. He is a slave to Potiphar. God blesses Joseph, and therefore God blesses Potiphar. And the amazing thing about verse 3 is Potiphar recognizes something is going on here. This does not mean that Potiphar is converted to worshiping Yahweh. He's just observing something on here. This guy's a talented guy. Everything he's doing is successful. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house. Now, the term overseer, that's really what it means, but he now is in charge of everything Potiphar owns. He put him in charge of all he had from the time he made him as overseer of the house, and all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, that's kind of an aside, but it's saying he was so capable. He, Joseph, was so capable. Potiphar isn't worrying about anything. Good stewardship. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That's important because of what happens next. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Do I have to interpret that? No. Okay, everybody knows what that means. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in, char in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. Before we move on to the next paragraph, being in verse 11, I want to think with you a little bit about this. When she says to him, lie with me, and in, in verse 10, she did this day after day after day, what word would you use to describe what's going on here? Starts with a T. Temptation. This is a temptation. Temptation, by definition, is an enticement to do something evil. So here is Joseph, day after day after day, being enticed by one of the most powerful women in Egypt, the wife of Potiphar, his boss. Remember, Joseph's still a slave. Even though he's overseer of the house of, and all the estates and everything that Potiphar owned, he's still a slave. But he's handsome in form and appearance, and his wife lusts after him. She tries to seduce him. But Joseph's response is crucial to the text. 
I will not sin against God. He doesn't say, I will not sin against my master Potiphar, although obviously that was part of it, but I will not sin against God. And so what you have here is this relentless, almost ruthless, really, temptation of Joseph. It was not uncommon for men in the Egyptian society who were powerful, influential men to have lots of women as consorts, as concubines, as mistresses. It was also not unusual for powerful women, now not the common ordinary Egyptian, but for powerful women to have men as lovers. And she assumed Joseph won't tell Potiphar, Potiphar won't know about it, I am seducing Joseph. And she probably would have said something like, Joseph, Potiphar's never going to know. Just come to bed with me. We'll have a wonderful afternoon together. We'll cap it off with a cup of Starbucks coffee and some peanut butter ice cream. How can you possibly refuse this? But day after day after day, Joseph refuses. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men in the house was there. She caught him by his garments, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul is dealing with the issue of immorality addressing the Corinthian church, he says, flee immorality. Most expositors think when Paul wrote that, he had in mind what Joseph did here. I mean, he is really, he's in a very difficult situation. He has heard her day after day after say, lie with me. Now she's grabbed his garment. She's taken his garment off. Now what is he going to do? Run as fast as he possibly can to get out of here. But as he soon, as soon as she saw that he left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, now Potiphar's wife is at a tipping point. She is not going to be successful in seducing Joseph. Now she's going to get back at him. She's going to embarrass him. She's going to humiliate him. She's going to get him fired. She's going to get him thrown in prison. She does three things. Remember, other workers, undoubtedly those whom Joseph had supervised or whatever, other workers are here. And this is what she says. I'm in the middle of verse 14. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Now, when she says he, who does she mean? Her husband, Potiphar. My husband has brought among us a Hebrew, the second thing, a Jew. By this time in Egyptian history, the Egyptians were developing a fear and a distrust 
of individuals or groups who were not Egyptians. They had been attacked from the east several times. The Nile Delta had been attacked several times. So she's playing on that. And she says, he, my husband, brought among us a Hebrew. He's not an Egyptian. To laugh at us, to mock us, to make fun of us. So she's leveling a very serious charge at Joseph. And she's making her husband complicit. He did this to me. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me, fled, and got out of the house. And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told the same story, this meaning Potiphar, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came here to laugh at me. Other way to mock me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, in this sight of all of the other servants, all the household, Potiphar's wife has made an accusation about Joseph, but she's also made an accusation about Potiphar. What's Potiphar going to do? His name, his reputation, his integrity, his trustworthiness is also at stake. Because she's saying he really is the one who's to blame for this mess. This Jew was here trying to seduce me. A lie, but what's Potiphar going to do? Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Trumped up charges, false accusations, lies, and Potiphar, whose reputation and integrity is on the line, believes what his wife has said and throws Joseph in prison. But what's the very next verse say? But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love. Now, all of you students of Hebrew know what that word is. What is it? Hesed. Loyal covenant love. So what do we conclude from verse 21? That God is providentially superintending the events, even of this seduction. God is taking something that's evil and bringing good out of it. That's God's providence. And so Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, is reminding the readers, you and me, about 3,800 years after the event occurred, Yahweh is with Joseph, showing him loyal covenant love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Hmm. Joseph has now gone from being a headmaster and overseer, one of the most powerful men in Egypt, is in prison, but now he's finding favor with the leader of the prison. God is with Joseph. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it, the keeper of the prison. 
paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Now, Joseph is in prison, but the God is going to bless his context of the prison because Joseph is there. So, question. Uh, please, go ahead. Um, in 20, it talks about the king's prisoners. Should that be the Pharaoh's prisoners? That's correct. Okay. That's right. This would be, that's a really good point, Glenn. I should have commented on that. This is, this is the main prison that was used by Pharaoh. And so the king's prison, that would be Pharaoh's prison. That's correct. This is the key prison of the Pharaoh. And that's where Potiphar put Joseph. Yes, good. I'm glad you caught that. All right. Uh, we got about five minutes. Any other questions? Uh, this isn't hard. But again, you've seen how many times in chapter 39 that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. God is superintending and providentially overseeing what's happening to Joseph to accomplish his, that is, God's purposes. Chapter 40, let's get started with this. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. We do not know all of the details of this, but the cupbearer and the baker of the pharaoh, king of Egypt is the pharaoh. That's pretty serious. <laughs> and they end up in prison because, as Glenn correctly said, and I should have commented, but he caught that. This is the prison of the pharaoh. So now two very important per people have been thrown into prison. They had served the pharaoh, the baker, and the cupbearer of the king. Verse 2. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. Coincidence or providence? The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in his custody. So in God's providence now, Joseph how has authority over these two former officials of the Pharaoh. Verse 5, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody in his custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? It would be like you and I saying, you're having a bad day, aren't you? Did you ever look at somebody in their face and their countenance and say, this guy's having a bad day? He either didn't sleep well or his wife's angry at him or kids or whatever. Joseph, just the countenance of the face, Joseph discerned something's wrong. You guys having a bad day? Verse 8, they said, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them 
to me. It's an amazing statement by Joseph. I don't know the theology of these two former officials of the Pharaoh. They would have been polytheists, worshiping many different gods. But Joseph is saying, in effect, I know who can interpret your dream. God can. Tell me your dream. By the way, does Joseph have any experience with dreams? Remember, that's got him into trouble in the first place. And he's, trying, he's telling his brothers, I had this dream, and this is what it means. You guys are going to bow down to me, which is a great way to win friends and influence people among your brothers. But Joseph is, is correct here. My God can interpret these dreams. So, verse 9, you have the first individual. The chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossom shot forth, and the clusters ripened in the grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Here I have done nothing that they should put me into the he interprets it. God gives him the right interpretation, but he says, when you get back into Pharaoh's court and you restored as a cupbearer, remember me. Now, the big question, because we're almost out of time, is will the cupbearer remember Joseph? Second dream. Verse 16, then the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable and said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. Remember, he's the baker. He baked the bread for the Pharaoh. And the uppermost basket, there are all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket of my head, on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The baskets are three days. In three days, the Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Whew. Not exactly the same interpretation from the cupbearer. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Who did not forget Joseph? God. The chief cupbearer forgot him. But God didn't. Now, if you want to know what happens to Joseph, because God did not forget Joseph, you got to come back next week to get into chapter 42. Okay?
Very well. All right. All right, let me pray here and I'll let you guys go. Father, we thank you for Joseph. Thank you for his integrity. Thank you for his remarkable, remarkable confidence in you. I will not sin against my God in the relentless, almost ruthless temptation day after day of Potiphar's wife. He was willing to even flee with the garments in her hand rather than be seduced by her. Lord, Joseph is a man who trusted in you, believed that you would take care of him. We read again and again, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Lord, that is true for each one of us. As we men of faith who desire to walk in love and obedience with you, you are with us. Jesus promised, I will be with you forever. I will be with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So that applies to us. Help us to be men who trust you, men of integrity men of faithfulness and trustworthiness, who desire not to sin against our God, but to walk in loving obedience. Or help us not to be men like Judah. The contrast in chapter 38 and chapter 39 between Judah and Joseph is marked. It's clear. Joseph is the one who you were with him, but Judah is a trophy of your grace too. That was a turning point in Judah's life when he's exposed by Tamar but a man who had much burden, much sin to deal with. Joseph reflected his integrity and trust and confidence in you. We want to be men like Joseph, men of integrity and faithfulness to you. Help us to do that. Be with these men. Watch over them. Care for them. May they represent you well. So we commit these things to you now as we are dismissed with your blessing. In the name of your son, we pray. 